2: here? Welcome in, everybody, episode we... six, six sixty one. of the, the podcast in a sweeping America. the Air Sports Podcast, presented by Betfred Sportsbook. It is Monday, February 6th, 2022. People, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day, and I hope everybody is ready, because this is about to be a jam-packed Monday episode of the Tour Sports Podcast. Here is what you need to know about today's show. Wasn't quite sure where I was going to start. Then Jim Beheim late Saturday, goes on a wild rant about NIL, the state of college sports. It actually makes no sense when you actually break it down. That is where we'll lead the show. From there, we'll get into some of the Saturday results in college basketball. Duke Carolina, they're unranked, but it's Duke Carolina, so of course it matters. Purdue loses, what do I make of that? Gonzaga loses, what do I make of that? couple other odds and ends, Uh, you know, Kentucky takes care of business against Florida. UConn survives. You know, there were there was a few other noteworthy results, a wild finish between Auburn and Tennessee and what was otherwise an awful game. So a lot to get into there. Then we'll wrap with a little bit of college football. I do think there are two interesting notes from this past weekend in college football since I last recorded one. Alabama has settled on an offensive coordinator. I know that doesn't sound sexy. But in the ecosystem of college football, it's actually very important. And oh, by the way, have you seen what Hugh Freeze has done at Auburn? Listen, first year head coach. I know he will ultimately be defined on does he win and does he lose on Saturdays. But this guy is doing some stuff that I don't think anybody thought was possible in such a short amount of time. Big news out of Auburn that we will get into. But that said, though, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, I'll just tell you. You know, I start to mentally kind of put together this show in my head as I'm watching games on Saturday, watching games on Sunday, what are the topics? What is what is going to be interesting to you guys and girls as an audience? And so I wasn't really sure what I was going to talk about because at the end of the day, is Duke Carolina that interesting when neither team is ranked? Is Purdue losing as the number 1 team in the country interesting even though it was by a couple points on the road to a big time rival? So I wasn't really sure where I was going to go. And then Saturday about, I I saw it at 1130 Eastern. I don't know exactly when the article published, but Jim Beheim did a wild interview with Pete Thamel from ESPN. That was just, it was insane. It was crazy. He talks about NIL. He talks about his retirement. And so I want to break it all down, but let me just get straight to the meat of the story here, which is Jim Beheim is so old and so miserable. It is time for this man to step away. I don't even think Syracuse fans are defending him at this point. But what's interesting is, as I said, content gods out of nowhere just dropped like, like a insane story to me at about 1130 Eastern on Saturday night. Uh, Jim Bayham was clearly past his bedtime because he was just saying whatever he wanted. But anyway, what's ironic about the story is the most interesting quote actually got buried at the beginning, at the end, excuse me. At the beginning, the story was supposed to be about Jim Beheim. Is he planning to retire after this year? The guy is 78 years old. Syracuse as a program has clearly taken a step back. And so he was asked about it and he addressed it in the article. This isn't why I want to talk about it, but it is noteworthy. So I'll just tell you what he said. He said, I have no other plans, quote, other than to coach. Listen, this has been the question of the day for 15 years. This isn't a new question. It's just the calendar going, well, he's 78. It's just the calendar. If it wasn't the calendar, if I was 65, No one would be saying anything, and I'm not going to retire just because it's the calendar. Anything can happen. Anything literally. We'll just see what happens. I don't say anything because I don't know. He then concluded, I know it's my choice. I can do whatever I want. You never want to hear when you're the boss and your employee is not performing and he says, I can do whatever I want. That's never a good sign. And then he wrapped by saying, I just don't know for sure. And if that was where the article ended, who cares? I'm not talking about it on Monday's Aaron Torres pot. But then, buried much later in the article, and 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 you know, I think smart people picked up really quick. Like there was this crazy quote about nil in the current state of college sports. That I'll be honest, when I saw it, I was like, that can't be a real quote. Somebody is making that up. That can't be a real quote. That can't be something that he just said. And he, he, he couldn't have said it at any other point because I would have heard about it. But Jim Bayheim went with a wild quote about the state of college sports and some of his ACC uh, rivals or contemporaries at the very least that absolutely blew my mind. So here's the quote. Let's get into it. Let's not waste any more time. This is the quote from Jim Beheim on the state of college sports right now. Here is what he said. He said, this is an awful place where we're in in college basketball. Pittsburgh bought a team. Okay, fine. My big donor talks about it, but he doesn't give anyone any money. Nothing. Not one guy. Our guys make like 20K a year. Wake Forest bought a team. Miami bought a team. It's like, really? This is where we are? That's really where we are. And it's only going to get a lot worse. To which I say, what? Did Jeb Beheim really say that? And like, listen, this obviously has shades of Nick Saban. And has shades of Nick Saban versus Jimbo Fisher, but at least the Jimbo Fisher rumors had been out there for two, three, four months at the time that Nick Saban said it. For Jim Boeheim to come out of nowhere and to just start throwing grenades at Wake Forest and Pittsburgh, are you kidding me? So let's talk about it. Let's break it down. And First of all, what I would say, and I I had a buddy on Fox Sports Radio because this happened during our show on Saturday. Actually say this out loud. I thought it was pretty on point. Remember, this whole interview was in an article about him wanting to come back as the head coach of Syracuse next year. So first of all, the the world is so bad, but I'm probably going to come back, which we'll talk about in a minute. But really, I want to break down what he said because I could not believe that he said it, and not only that I couldn't believe that he said it. I think it's awful, I think it's embarrassing, I think he I think he embarrassed himself. I think he he made himself look bad. I don't know if he was intending to make other schools look bad in this new NIL world, but I thought this was awful. This is the latest thing, and it is time for him to go. But but, but breaking it down, let's just stick, you know, as the kids say, let's keep the main thing the main thing, okay? And the main thing is, here again is the quote. This is the an awful place we're in in college basketball. Pittsburgh bought a team. Okay, fine. My big donor talks about it, but he doesn't give anyone any money. Nothing, not one guy. Our guys make 20,000. Wake Forest bought a team. Miami bought a team. It's like really, this is where we are. So, first of all, what I would say Miami, okay. You have boosters talking about it, whatever. We've talked about that a million times on this show. But let me ask you guys and girls a question. You guys are driving around, you're in your car, you're at the gym, you're doing whatever you're doing when you listen to this show. Let me ask you a simple question. When I talk to you and when we think about, big money schools that are clearly paying players Is wake forest the first one that comes to mind the smallest school by the way in terms of total population in terms of total student enrollment in the power five of all of college sports do you think of wake forest and do you think of Pitt? because i'll be honest i do not and beyond that let me first of all just say this one steve forbes head coach of wake forest he has already denied this via Matt Norlander, CBS Sports. He already put out a statement: no player has ever chosen Wake Forest uh, based on NIL. But why I bring it up is because I just want to ask you a simple question. I, what what I want to do? Does Wake Forest feel like a school that's just buying players? Well, here's the bottom line: many of you, you have jobs, you have kids, you have families, you have whatever. You don't have time to 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 break down the Wake Forest roster and who was getting cash where. So let's just break down the Wake Forest roster and ask ourselves if this sounds like the type of person who is getting a bag to play college basketball. So Wake Forest's leading scorer this year is a kid named Tyree Appleby, okay? Tyree Appleby is a sixth-year senior. Tyree Appleby began his career at Cleveland State. He then transferred to play two seasons for Mike White at Florida, and then he left Florida to play at wake forest each of the last two years again he's about 24 25 years old a six foot one senior who by the way arrived at wake forest before nil even existed but let me just ask you a question just just let's talk it out loud does a six1 25 year old point guard who started his career at cleveland state does that sound like the kind of kid that's just getting a bag to go wherever because i'll be honest Doesn't really say when I think big money purchases in NIL, I don't think you're going to Cleveland State to get your guy. Oh, by the way, Wake Forest's second leading scorer, Damari Monsanto. Background on him he was the 350th ranked player in his high school class, a three star recruit who committed to Steve Forbes when Steve Forbes was at East Tennessee State. Steve Forbes gets the wake forest job and follows what steve forbes to wake forest so let's just ask a simple question there does that feel like the kind of kid 350th in the country committed to east tennessee comes to wake forest does that sound like the kind of kid that's getting a bag to go somewhere because i feel like probably not i feel like if he was that good he wouldn't have to commit to east tennessee state no disrespect to the i believe they're the moccasins i could be wrong on that the mocks doesn't seem like the kind of guy that's, oh, uh, Chattanooga's the mocks. E- neither here nor there. Doesn't seem like the kind of guy that's getting a bag to go somewhere. By the way, fourth-leading scorer, Davian Williamson, also started his career at East Tennessee State, followed Steve Forbes to Wake Forest. Third-leading scorer, a kid named Cam Hildreth, 6'9 forward from England. Again, doesn't feel like we're we're, we're flying across, uh, you know, the, the Atlantic. Uh, you know, we're not Howard Hughes over here dropping bags over the Atlantic to get kids to come to Wake Forest. Pitt, by the way, their best player. Jamarius Burton, fifth-year player, began his career at Wichita State. Went to Texas Tech, could barely get off the bench. That was when Chris Beard was still there. Comes to Pitt, really good player last year, now really good this year. Outside of him, how about this? Pitt's second-leading scorer, Blake Hinson, began his career at Ole Miss, sat out the entire 2021 and 2022 seasons, has not played since before the COVID pandemic. He is back playing at Pitt doesn't really strike me as the kind of guys that are taking a huge bag to play college basketball. And as a matter of fact, I think that for me, as someone who knows this sport, I think pretty well. That is the most frustrating part to me at all, because I think Jeff Capel is doing about as good of a coaching job as anybody in college basketball this year. Nobody looked at this roster and said, this is an NCAA tournament team. Yet as I record right now, this second, Pitt is sitting in second place in the ACC. They're actually tied for second place with Virginia at nine and three overall, 16 and seven, and they're in the NCAA tournament. Wake Forest has a little bit of work to do, but they're 15 and nine and probably on the bubble. What I see when I look at those two programs, this is what I see. I see two good teams that are well coached. And you know what they're, those two schools are actually doing? They're not buying their teams, their coaches are actually coaching them. So credit to Steve Forbes at Wake Forest. Credit to Jeff Capel. You two are doing incredible work and deserve the praise all while Jim Bayheim is complaining. By the way, you know what the craziest part about all this is? And I spent probably way too much time breaking down Pitt and Wake Forest rosters. But the crazy part about this is this. If you actually read the quote, think about the second part of that quote. This is what Jim Beheim actually said. My big donor talks about it. But he doesn't give anyone any money. Nothing. Not one guy. So, Jim Bayheim isn't really mad that, in his words, Wake Forest bought a team. In his words, Pitt bought a team. He's mad that his players aren't getting all the money that they are. So, he's not really mad about NIL. He's mad that his players aren't getting a cut of the pie. To which I say, listen, I've made the point. Let's start to put contextualize all this. Jim Bayheim man. It is time to step away. It's one thing to embarrass your university and your community and your region of the country on the court because your team stinks. It's another thing when you continually publicly embarrass yourself, your university, the region of the country where you live off the court. It's time to step away. And what I would say, and I've done the Jim Beheim rant a few times on this show because it's always applicable. This is a program. Listen, I grew up a UConn fan, right? When I was a kid, UConn-Syracuse was the biggest rivalry in the Big East. So I can sit here and say, and people say, "Oh, Torres, you just don't like him because it's Syracuse." No, I don't like it because I know what Syracuse is capable of being as a program, and I know that they are nowhere close to reaching that potential under Jim Boeheim. And I also know that if it was literally anyone other than him who had the same results that he's had over the last decade. He would have been out of there. By the way, don't believe me? Here are the stats on Jim Beheim. Jim Bayheim in the last... Here's the crazy stat on Jim Beheim. Since 2014, how about this? This is a crazy stat. I could not believe it when I saw it. Do you know that the last time that Jim Beheim finished in the top five in his conference, not number one, not won the league, not best team in the conference, The last time he finished in the top five of his conference was 2014. That was Syracuse's first year in the ACC. 2014 was the last time they finished in the top five. Not won the league, not won the conference tournament, not this, not that. Top five. Beyond that, how about this? Here are Jim Boeheim's records in the last 10 years, and I'll be quick. 18 and 13 in 2015. 2016 they had to vacate a bunch of wins so it's hard to actually know their schedule but they finished 23 and 14 overall but again they had to vacate a bunch of wins 19 and 15 in 2017 23 and 14 in 2018 20 and 14 in 2019 18 and 14 in 2020 18 and 10 in 2021 remember that was the COVID year where we canceled a bunch of games 16 and 17 last year 14 and 10 this year and so i bring it up since 2014. Outside of a COVID year where he only played 28 games, Jim Beheim has not lost fewer than 13 games in any season since 2013, 2014, excuse me. And yes, I get that he has made a few tournament runs. Most notably, he made a Final Four in 2016, Sweet 16 in 2018, and 2021. At the same time, though, what cannot be denied is that, like I said, It's bad. It's embarrassing. It's time for him to go. And I don't, I I believe two things. One, I believe if Jim Bayheim was any other coach, he would have been fired a long time ago. But then also, I believe this. I don't even know if Jim Beheim wants to coach Syracuse anymore. What I do believe is that he is a 78-year-old guy that has nothing to do with his time and Would rather just be the coach of Syracuse because it gives him something to do rather than he actually cares about what's the best for Syracuse, for the university, for the region. It's embarrassing. It's sad. And it's time for him to go. And what I'll say is I'll give Syracuse fans credit. This year to me is the first time that I feel like they have actually they're like they're at their wits end. Okay, I think for, you know, 15 years ago, he was still winning at a high level. Then he started to kind of lose the fastball, but you make an NCA tournament run here or there. Um, and, and we'll forgive you. You know, you, you made a final four in 2016, how mad can we be? You made a final four in 20 or a sweet 16 in 2018, how mad can we be? But then I think this is what happened. So you're winning at a high level. Now you're not winning, but you're still making tournament runs. Now, here was the issue the last couple years. He had his son, Buddy Bayheim, on this on the team, and then he brought his second son Uh, Jimmy Bayham, a grad transfer, into play for him. And so I think for most Syracuse fans, I think there was kind of this understanding. Well, you know, we really, we could take him or leave him, but his kids are there. Once his kids leave, he'll go. Well, this year, his kids are both gone, and he doesn't seem intent on retiring at any time soon. And so this feels like the year where Syracuse fans have lost, like like they've just lost. They're, They're just ready to move on. They're ready to move in another direction. And I feel like he's being held more accountable for his behavior and his actions. Again, there was a dust up with a student reporter about two, three weeks ago. I forget all the details, but how long ago it was too, but it was about two weeks ago and the student reporter asked kind of a fair question, reasonable question. He completely blew up. Now we have this. And so it's gotten to the point. He's 78 years old. The team has basically for 99% of the season been irrelevant for about a decade now. And on top of that, um, you know, really the last five, six years, it's just been really, really, really bad. So I, I don't know what happens. And Jim Bayheim claims that he gets to decide what his future is, but it feels like it's time. What I would finally say before I wrap is this, and I've said this many times on the show, so I want to make it clear. People say, oh, Torres, you're a UConn alum, so you just, uh, whatever. Here's the bottom line. I am a UConn alum. I did go to games at the Carrier Dome when I was at school, and, and I've been to games at the Carrier Dome. And when the Carrier Dome is packed, And the Carrier Dome is rocking and the Carrier Dome is what it can be. It is the most unique home court in all of college basketball. And I always think about that because I truly believe in my heart of hearts that Syracuse is a program. They should be in the top 15 every single year. I think when you walk into that dome, when you see the passion that the school, the city, the region has for Syracuse basketball, I still think it's one of the most underrated jobs in the country. And so I think there's a lot of people that kind of sit there and say, well, you know, what happens when Jim Beheim leaves? I actually think it's the exact opposite. I think people are saying, well, do they take a step back when he leaves? Well, ninth in the ACC last year, eighth the year before, sixth the year before, seventh, tenth, seventh, ninth, eighth in the last decade. I don't think the program falls back after he leaves. I think he is the one holding them back. I really do hope that he decides to step away. It's time. He's grumpy. And he's embarrassing the university. He's embarrassing the university. All right, this is what I want to do. I do want to take a quick break. And when I come back, we're going to get to some of the actual on-the-court results on Saturday. One game we will not be talking about, by the way. Syracuse beat Boston College on Saturday. This is where this rant all started. I'm going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, we're going back to the show in a minute. But before we do, I want to welcome back our presenting sponsor, Betfred Sportsbook and the Betfred Sportsbook app. By now, you know Betfred's story. Started in 1967 in the UK. Over 1,600 shops in the UK have come to the United States and made a major splash. They are the presenting sponsor of the Cincinnati Bengals, Colorado Rockies, Denver Broncos. And what I love about working with Betfred, nobody does more for their customers than Then Betfred does, okay? I've told you before, but I'm going to keep telling you. Cincinnati Bengals games, that Betfred suite is rocking. They had a New Year's Eve into New Year's Day party for the launch of sports betting in the state of Ohio. Shout out to all of you who were there. Obviously, beyond that, there is the Denver Broncos VIP tailgates. We have sent listeners of this show to those tailgates. Colorado Rockies, first pitch at those games. Betfred does more for their customers than anybody, and here is what they are doing. For listeners of the Aaron Torres podcast, okay? So what you got to do, bet 50 on any game and new users, how about this? Get up to $1,000 in free bets. There are no catches. There are no gimmicks. Here's what you need to know. Bet 50 on any game. You get automatically $111 in free bets. But beyond that, you get $200 insurance on your first five weeks as a Betfred customer. So you decided, hey, I'm going to bet this big game. 100 bucks, 200 bucks, whatever. You end up losing it. They're going to insure you for that game. So up to five weeks, up to $200 plus $111 for signing up for Betfred today. If you're going to want to do it. Download the Betfred Sportsbook app. Tell them Torres sent you. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, the Betfred Sportsbook.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
1: Laundry? oh a book club! Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, or by law, 80 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With
3: the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: I'm back. Good to be back. Gonna be back. I do want to switch gears. I want to talk a little bit about the results on the court. By the way, one quick little mini announcement. I think we'll do a Tuesday bonus episode of the Aaron Torres pod. So my buddy, John Destremski, if you know the name, previously worked at WFAN in New York. Now he is a host of a podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network known as New York, New York. Great friend of mine is from New York, went to Syracuse, and covers St. John's. And so we're going to have a wide-ranging interview where we talk a lot about the Syracuse situation with Bayheim. Is it time for him to go? And also, you know, Patino to St. John's is my personal life's mission at this point. So we'll have him on on Tuesday. But let's focus on the ga- the results on Saturday. And what I would say about Saturday is this. Yes, we had a bunch of top 25 matchups, and we are going to get to all of them. But the big game was still Duke and Carolina. And I understand, I know I said on Friday's show, is it the same? Post Coach K, all of that. And on the one hand, it did kind of feel like one of those TV shows that's kind of like rebooted from an old show where you have the same set and the same location and the same background and the same this and the same that, but the main characters are different and it just feels different. That was kind of what Duke Carolina felt like on Saturday, with Shire on one sideline, Hubert Davis on the other. Yes, this is Hubert Davis's second year. But we went from Coach K and Roy Williams eighteen months ago, twenty four months ago, to two brand new coaches in the last couple of years. It did feel a little bit weird. But what I would also say is, once the ball tipped, it kind of felt like Duke Carolina. Like I, I, we can criticize: are they good? Are they bad? Are these the right coaches? Who's ranked? Who's not? Neither team ranked right now. It was a great game though. Once it got played, and Duke gets a victory, sixty three to fifty seven. Now we're going to talk about Duke in a minute. But I don't know that there's like an amazing takeaway on Duke right now. They're an okay basketball team. They're not ranked in the top twenty-five. They probably shouldn't be. They actually play at Miami on Monday night, a game that I think they could potentially lose. Overall, Duke right now, as I record here, and again, they play Monday night, so it's going to change pretty quickly. But Duke is still just seventeen and six overall, eight and four in the ACC. You know, tied for fifth or so place, depending on the the, the tiebreakers and things like that. We'll get to some Duke stuff in a minute, but to me, the story is still North Carolina. The more interesting story, as I say, is often in the losing locker room. And I think it's this case. Because I've been a defender of Hubert Davis. I was a guy that picked North Carolina to win the national championship in the preseason. But what I would say, we are at the point where we are in the middle of the second straight, frustrating regular season for North Carolina. And I do believe that those good vibes from last year's Final Four run are once again gone and if you remember it was really around this time last year i mean i started going in on hubert davis um but i think it was justified when i did it you know what one, one thing about me you can like me you can hate me you can agree you can disagree when i go hard on somebody generally it comes from a place of knowledge you can agree with me you can disagree with me but when i go hard at somebody i've been watching the games i've been talking to people behind the scenes and and, and i bring it up because this time last year i was really hard on hubert davis After the first Duke game, they played Duke the first weekend in February, just like this year. It was Saturday, February 5th. So it was a a day ago, you know, a year and a day, whatever. And they lost to Duke 87 to 67. At that point, they were 16 and seven overall, eight and four in the ACC. But it continued this disturbing trend of just getting blown out in big games. This was a team that not only lost by 20 to Duke, but they lost by 19 to Wake Forest. They lost by 28 to Miami. They lost by 29 to Kentucky in the uh, S- the CBS Sports Classic last December. They lost by 17 to Tennessee. They lost by 9 to Purdue. And so I bring it up because Hubert Davis was really going through some stuff this time last year. And to his credit, he turned things around. They get to a Final Four. They play for a national championship. And I was all in on the Tar Heels. I said it took a while. I trust Hubert Davis. And even being around him a little bit at the Final Four, I said this is the right guy for the job. The problem is that this year is almost an exact carbon copy of last year, right down to the win loss record. Last year, coming out of the first Duke game, they were 16 and seven overall, eight and four in the ACC. This year, with four returning starters off of that team, they are 15 and eight, seven and five in the ACC, going into what is actually a pretty tough stretch for them. Their next four against teams that are probably going to make the NCAA tournament or at least are in consideration at Wake Forest Tuesday. Clemson, Miami, at NC State. Those are some really good teams, and then they close with Virginia and Duke late in the season. And so I bring it up because there's no guarantee that this thing just gets flipped for North Carolina, but the bigger concern to me continues to be this looks an awful lot like the same team from last year with a lot of the same problems that they had this time a season ago. What are those problems? Well, they still haven't figured out a way to rein in Caleb Love. And I'm not trying to blame one player for any one thing. But if you remember, last year, Caleb Love was a sophomore, thought he was going to be a one-and-done, was trying to do too much, and they really had success with Caleb Love when they moved him off the ball, where he let things come to him by themselves, and they were able to have success that way. Just one problem. He's back to being a little bit erratic. 37 minutes on Saturday, 5 for 15 shooting from the field, 2 of 7 from 3, And this after a game against Pitt the other day that I watched from start to finish, and it was much the same. 8 of 18 from the field, 4 for 11 from 3, but here's the thing, he had his first two threes to start the game, so went 2 for 9 in his last nine three-point attempts, and it's kind of the same thing. Too many erratic shots, too many shots outside of the offense, and most importantly, what ends up happening is this. You have an elite big man down low in Armando Baycott that is not getting the ball enough. And so when you ask what's wrong with North Carolina, why they're in the same position as last year, it's because they're essentially the same team as last year, a team that has guards that play a little bit out of control. They don't use the big man enough and they remain insanely frustrating. Now, the positive news, if you're a Carolina fan, I think it's pretty obvious, right? You were in this position last year and you figured it out. I just gave out the win-loss records from a season ago but it's worth reiterating cuz it is jarring how similar they are. Last year at this time, they were th- they were 16 and 7 coming out of the first Duke game 8 and 4 in the ACC. This year they're 15 and 7, 7 and 5. The good news though is that after the first Duke game in the 2022 season, North Carolina went 13 and 3. They beat Duke in the final home game of Coach K. You may remember that. And they beat Coach K and Duke in the Final Four. So the question for Carolina. Can they turn things around? Can they figure things out? It won't be easy. The ACC is better this year. The schedule is tougher this year. But the pathway is there. But what I will say is Carolina fans are frustrated. I understand their frustration. And they've got to be better. This was the preseason number one team. There's no excuse to be this bad. And more importantly, and I remember talking about this with Hubert Davis at this time last year, inherited a veteran group, a lot of talent. Next year, most of those guys are going to be gone next year. You're going to have a lot of freshmen. It's not going to get easier from here. And that's why I think he's got to turn things around really quickly from the Duke perspective. I don't want to make a big deal about it because Duke right now is still, as I record here right now, on the the, the 5th of February, they're 16 and 17 and six. Eight and four in the ACC, good record, but they play at Miami on Monday night. Miami's a really good team. Miami's a really good team that's going to be a tough game. We don't have the odds in the Bet Fred Sportsbook yet, but my guess is they will be an underdog in that game. And so it's important to, rem- like, it's important not to go crazy about Duke. Now, there are some positives. The most important positive for Duke, Derek Lively, starting to look really good. Derek Lively was the number one high school player in last year's class. He, commits to Duke. And he was really kind of a defense energy hustle guy that spent most of the year banged up. And then even when he got healthy, just couldn't figure it out. Well, this was by far his best game, four points, 14 rebounds, eight blocks. And I'm not saying you're going to get eight blocks every game, but if he can channel that, if he can be that guy, the rest of the way, I actually think Duke can be a halfway decent team. Now Duke like Carolina, they have a tough schedule ahead themselves. Like I said, they play at Miami on Monday. That game is not easy. Then at Virginia next Saturday, they still got to see our buddy Syracuse, Jim Beheim later on in the year, and they play NC State in North Carolina and close things out. Just bring it up to say things are better. I'm not going to go crazy. The other important note on Duke, Jeremy Roach, the only returnee from last year's Final Four team, he is starting to figure it out as well. He was excellent in this game. He was excellent for Duke, finishing the game overall with 20.7 rebounds and five assists. Tyrese Proctor, a freshman from Australia, starting to play well as kind of a number 2 guard. And I'll give credit where it's due. I could see the scenario where Duke uses this to build a little momentum. But again, at Miami on Monday, at Virginia on Saturday, it's not going to be easy.
3: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Couple other results from the weekend. One, Purdue was number one in the country. Goes to Indiana. Faces my boy Mike Effen Woodson. And they fall 79-74 to to the Hoosiers. Purdue, only their second loss of the year. They lost to Rutgers at home earlier. Then they lose to Indiana at home late. In terms of this game, listen. First of all, credit Indiana, man. Great atmosphere, great environment. Second year in a row that they've beaten them in Bloomington. And Trace Jackson Davis, I can't emphasize this enough. This dude is playing like an All-American. Now, I don't want to say on the game he was better than Zach Eady because Zach Eady was awesome but finished with 25, 7, and 5 blocks on Saturday. And again, this after a stretch that includes 25 and 21 against Minnesota, 31 and 15 in a win over Michigan State. And so it's important because we make fun of Indiana and how good are they and blah, 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 and this and that. They look really freaking good right now. Overall, they've won 6 of 7. Overall, I would argue, uh, you know, obviously, look, if you beat Purdue... You can't really argue that anybody's playing better than indiana and after they struggled to start the league play they struggled in losing to penn state on the road and northwestern at home they're now 16 and 7 and in tied for third place in the big 10 overall and what's most important i think this is really important they're starting to figure out how to play without xavier johnson he was their starting point guard. He was the guy that initiated all this offense, and he was the guy that got hurt against Kansas when they played at Fog Allen Fieldhouse in December. He goes down. They It took him a while to figure it out. Jalen hood Shafino, true freshman, has been phenomenal. i tell you, Indiana's looking really, really, really good right now. Credit to the Hoosiers. But to me, the story is obviously in this one, it is the Purdue Boilermakers. And the, and the one thing I, I, I want to do, and I want to be fair, I'm not going to go crazy on Purdue. It's worth noting, I have not been a huge Purdue guy all season. No knock on Purdue, no knock on Matt Painter, but my concern with Purdue has always been pretty straightforward. Said, I really don't know what they get consistently outside of Zach Eady, They're all American. Well, Zach Eady had 33 points and 18 rebounds on Saturday against Indiana. And they still lost. And so that comes down to essentially exactly what I've been talking about. Second highest scorer was Fletcher Lawyer with 12 points. But Purdue overall has two, their their second and third leading scorers are a pair of freshman guards. And I think this is important. I I heard Lafonso Ellis bring this up on college game day on Saturday, or Somebody referenced it anyway. You look at Purdue, and this has been my concern with them is that do they have those guards that can take over. Fonzwell said, "Do they have an NBA guard on their roster?" I don't think they do. And so you get to March, plays break down, things happen. This is why it's so important to have a guard that can make plays. Kentucky fans, you know what I'm talking about. Every year, Calipari, this is you can criticize Calipari for whatever. He always finds that guard that can make plays when everything else breaks down. John Wall, Brandon Knight. Um you know, this year it's Case Wallace in the past. It's Tyler Eulis, now an assistant coach, Derek Rose. You need those guys trying to think of other teams, other programs. UConn's probably the best example. Kemba Walker, Shabazz Napier, Villanova's had those guys. At some point, you need a guy to just go make a play. I don't know if Purdue has them. So I'll be curious to see how they handle things going forward. I think they're worthy of being ranked number one in the country as they were going into the weekend. And I think they're worthy of being a number 1 seed and all the things that are going to come with it. Be interesting to see how they bounce back. They play Iowa on Wednesday, or Thursday, excuse me, then at Northwestern at Maryland. Maryland still has not lost at home. Maryland tied for third with Indiana, and it's really about a five-way tie for third place in the league. Purdue, I think, will be fine in league play. I do worry about the NCAA tournament, the one and done. Do they have anybody that can beat you besides Zach Eadie? Quick couple other scores. You know, Iowa State smacked Kansas on Saturday. I don't think there's a huge takeaway. I've talked to you about Kansas, the good and the bad. And they really, Jalen Wilson, their wing is an All-American. When they get contributions from others, they have success. When they don't, they fail. Well, Dewan Harris, who had eight points, eight assists against Kentucky and 18 points against Kansas State the other night. Dewan Harris had two points in this game. They lose. Also, they're on the road. Iowa State's a really tough place to play. Iowa State is a good team. As I said on my show on Friday with Jamie and Christian, that is a team that is capable of making the Final Four. I think healthy, there are six teams in the Big 12 that can make the Final Four. Kansas, Kansas State, Iowa State, TCU, uh, Texas, who we'll get to in a minute. And who's the other one that I am missing outside of Texas, Iowa, Iowa, or Texas, Iowa State, TCU, kansas kansas state and baylor that's six teams that i think can make a final four iowa state wins they're really good they're really well coached by the way credit to tj otzelberger if you remember this guy last year iowa state his first year at iowa state was picked to finish 10th they make the ncaa tournament they make the sweet 16 in the ncaa tournament he loses his best player tyrese hunter to the transfer portal he ends up at texas Iowa State picked to finish eighth this year. They are currently trending as like a top three seed in the tournament. By the way, Kansas State was picked to finish tenth. They're doing pretty good as well. Speaking of Kansas State, they lost at home to Texas. To me, I think people are going to make this a Kansas State thing. This to me is a Texas thing. How about we take two minutes, and I know we criticize Texas for everything in sports. Texas, they're not back. They're this, they're that, the other thing. You understand, they had players that went to bed one night on a Sunday about a month ago, six weeks ago and Chris Beard was their head coach, and they woke up, and that head coach was in jail, and that that team has basically not missed a beat even without Chris Beard and is currently sitting alone in first place in the Big 12. And so rather than tearing down you know, Kansas State and what does it mean and why did they lose, I actually think it's a positive for Texas. Texas, since Chris Beard, got suspended. Remember, they had a game that night against Rice that went to overtime. They were seven and one when Chris Beard got let go or when Chris Beard got suspended. They're currently 18 and four, which means they've gone 11 and three in the toughest conference in college basketball. I'm impressed by this Texas team. I think it was a great win. I'm not going to take anything away from them. You no, know else I'm not going to take anything away from Gonzaga. I know on a day like today, it'd be easy for me to come on and say, I tried to tell you Gonzaga wasn't that good. It's like, well, I've done that, but they showed out pretty well at St. Mary's. They were in complete control for most of the game. They fall apart late. They do not get the win. But I'm not going to criticize Gonzaga uh, for losing on the road to a top 20 St. Mary's team. Uh, I think Gonzaga is going to be fine. I think they're limited in who they are and what they're capable of. I've never loved their guards. But their team, you know, they'll be a three seed. They'll make the Sweet 16. Then they'll run into an Alabama who, ironically, they beat this year. But they'll run into somebody better and they'll get the, the, their Sweet 16 type team. And that's fine. That's who they are. I will say it's interesting. You look at Gonzaga right now. They're talking about going to the Big 12. Remember that story from the summer? Big 12's having meetings right now about what the future of that league looks like. I think Gonzaga should stay in that WCC. Uh, a couple other results. UConn survives Georgetown. I've done the UConn ramp. I'm over it. They play too many players. They need to tighten up the rotation. Andre Jackson, maybe their best NBA draft prospect, although I think that's Jordan Hawkins. They need to put the ball in his hands. Tristan Newton has been playing very well for them, so credit to him. UConn barely survives Georgetown, but they play Marquette at home on Tuesday. I don't think they're winning that game. Then they play at Creighton on Saturday. They're definitely not winning that game. So UConn, I've done the rant. Two teams I want to give credit to before we get out of here, before we get to some college football news and notes. One, Arizona. Arizona quietly this weekend smacked the ever-loving you-know-what out of Oregon and Oregon State. They beat Oregon by 15. They beat Oregon State by 32 on Saturday night. I saw a quote from Tommy Lloyd, something to the effect of basically his starters came to him at halftime and said, you can take us out. We're good. We ain't losing this game. They were up 26 at the half. They end up cruising to a victory. That's one where you get the bench a lot of minutes. Uh, you know, I think I'm looking right now. They had about 13 players play 14 players play, including, um, including, uh, including walk-ons, but Arizona quietly. And I think this is important. Arizona quietly has won uh six straight. They took care of the LA schools. They took care of the Oregon schools. And remember, this is important. If they get that number one seat out West, the West regional is in Vegas. Vegas is basically Arizona home turf. That could be a very nice pathway for Arizona to the Final Four, but they get back-to-back wins. The other team I'll tell you about, man, listen, it it wasn't always pretty. It wasn't as close as it should have been. It was too close, closer than it should have been. But Kentucky won another one, man. Kentucky won another one. And listen, I will forever have to own the fact that the day they lost to South Carolina, I said the Kentucky, the the Calipari era is over. It's dead. It's never coming back. Well, since that day, they have won six of seven. They won at Tennessee. They beat Texas A&M at home. The only loss is to Kansas in a game they could have won. And don't let the final score fool you. They were the significantly better team than Florida. Cason Wallace coming into his own. Remember, he missed Tuesday night's game. Well, he responds 20 points for him, 17 points for Jacob Toppin. Oscar Sheboy, I will say, I mean, I think the the jury's out on him. If you have a true seven-footer, you're going to give Oscar Sheboy trouble. But Kentucky gets the win. And I'll tell you, they are going to hit a tough part of the schedule coming up. They have Arkansas at Rupp Arena on Tuesday. Later on in the month, they have Tennessee at home, Auburn at home, and they close with Arkansas on the road. But Kentucky starting to turn a corner, starting to play what they're capable of. This is what I want to do. Take a quick break, come back. And when I come back, two college football stories that we got to discuss. Take a quick break. We will be right back.
0: In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
3: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. And I do want to go ahead and wrap with a little bit of college football. It's not a busy time in college football. It's actually kind of a slow time. Now that National Signing Day is behind us, a lot of coaches are actually away on vacation right now, it's a couple of weeks vacation, you know, before spring ball starts up. But why I bring it up is because I do think there were really two stories over the last probably, you know, four or five days since I last recorded Friday's show that I do think are worth noting and diving into and just spending a few minutes on each. This isn't like a, you know, 18 minute Jim Bayheim rant like we just had to start the show. But as I said Two storylines that I think are worth monitoring. Actually, both come from the SEC. Both come from two big rivals. But where I want to start, the first one, it actually comes from the beautiful city of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. The last time we talked Alabama football, well, Nick Saban didn't have a coordinator at either spot. Offensive coordinator Bill O'Brien leaves to go back to the NFL with the New England Patriots. Defensive coordinator Pete Golding leaves to take the same job at Ole Miss. Although in both cases, let's be honest, I don't think Nick Saban really wanted either one back. But can't just fire guys. That makes you look bad. So he made sure that they ended up with nice landing spots. And Nick Saban over the last, you know, two weeks or so has been looking for two new coordinators. And so I bring it up. Because late last week, we really started to get some smoke about what could be potentially happening with the offensive coordinator position. A few big names were out there, but early in the week, we find out that they interview a guy named Ryan Grubb, who was part of the staff at Washington this year. Washington went 11-2. and Washington was really good. They won the uh, Alamo Bowl against Texas. And Ryan Grubb ultimately decides to stay at Washington. Does not. I, I don't even know if he was technically offered the job, but decides to stay at Washington. Then Thursday, right as I was getting set to record, you started to hear some buzz about Tommy Reese, the 30-ish-year-old Notre Dame offensive coordinator. And on Thursday, he actually flew to Tuscaloosa to meet with Nick Saban. Um, It wasn't rumor. It wasn't innuendo. You saw pictures of the actual Alabama plane landing in South Bend. Um, But as I recorded Thursday... Tommy Reese flew back to South Bend, and there was no official word one way or the other on if he had been offered the job or if he would take the job if it w- if he was even offered. Well, Friday, we get the news. Friday, it becomes official. Friday, Tommy Reese becomes the head, the offensive coordinator with the Alabama Crimson Tide. And it's really interesting because this is one of those stories. I think there's two really strong, passionate sides to each side of the argument. Some people really love the hire. Some people really hate the hire. I'll be blunt. I think I actually fall somewhere in the middle where I understand the concerns of certain people, but I also believe that there is a lot of reason for excitement with this hire as well, besides the fact just that it's Nick Saban, and I'm sorry, despite the fact that both coordinators weren't very good last year, I still believe in him, but let's get into it. Let's discuss really quickly, because like I said, I, I understand people who are a little bit concerned about Tommy Reese coming in as the Alabama offensive coordinator, and the more I think about it. I think the concern really kind of stems from, in my opinion, three places. I think, first of all, we have to remember the Alabama offensive coordinator job. Since Lane Kiffin made it the sexiest, you know, assistant coaching job in college football, this has been a very coveted, very desired job held by very high profile people. Lane Kiffin, a former USC head coach, had the job. Mike Loxley, who I get it, was coming off of a, you know, he had been a head coach, didn't work out, still a former head coach coming in to be the offensive coordinator. How about this? People forget, Brian Dable for a year, the current New York Giants head coach, was the offensive coordinator at Alabama for a year, and of course, Steve Sarkeesian, who for all his personal issues was a USC head coach, came in to be the offensive coordinator. Oh, by the way, Bill O'Brien, who most Alabama fans were not fans of, um... He was a former NFL head coach. And so like, I remember doing the segment at the time that he got hired and it was like, wow, Saban convinced a former NFL head coach to not only come back to college, but to be an assistant. That's kind of incredible. So I do think when Tommy Reese got the job, I think there was this, whoa, we went from hiring Lane Kiffin and Steve Sarkeesian and Bill O'Brien, former high profile college head coaches, former high profile NFL head coaches, um, to this job. And Tommy Reese just doesn't fit that bill. I also think there's some concern from Alabama fans or just college football in general because there were a lot of big names linked to this job. Now, I don't know how interested some of these guys were, but here are some of the names that were linked to the job when we knew that Bill O'Brien would not be back. Cliff Kingsbury, once he was fired with the Arizona Cardinals, did he really want the job? I don't know. He's in Thailand right now, hanging out, drinking Mai Tais, but bottom line is he was linked to the job. Scott Frost, linked to the job. Did he really want it? Is he enjoying the buyout life? He has more money than he can ever spend. I don't know if he really wanted it, but his name was linked to the job. Jeff Lebby, of course, the offensive coordinator at Oklahoma, one of the bright young minds many believe offensively in college football was linked to it. And also on top of that, Joe Brady, who of course was the the passing game coordinator with LSU, he was linked to the job. LSU under Joe Burrow, when he worked with Joe Burrow, was linked to the job. So I'm going on and on, but the point I'm trying to make previously high profile guys had held the job. High profile guys were linked to the job. And so when Tommy Reese gets the job, there's some concern. And then I think when you do look into his resume, I can see the concern for Alabama fans. You go back to this year, Notre Dame ranked 60th in all of college football in total offense. They were not very good early in the year. They were not very good against elite teams. If you remember early in the season, Um, they played at, uh, they played at Ohio state in week one. It did not go well on and on throughout the rest of the early part of the season, 10 points against Ohio state. They lose to Marshall at home, uh, you know, 14 points in a loss to Stanford. But what I will say, and let's get into some of the positives, the offense did get better. So bottom line is I understand Alabama fans. You think you're going to get a cliff Kingsbury, a Joe Brady, a somebody like that. Then you hear Tommy Reese. Then you look at the stats. Then you're not overwhelmed. And I understand where you'd be concerned. What I would also say, though, I actually think there's some reason for excitement. First of all, and I I don't think this can be understated enough. Tommy Reese, as I record here right now, is 30 years old to be 31 in May. Most all of his adult life has basically been spent at Notre Dame, played there for four years, hasn't been assistant coach there since 2017 after a brief stop in the NFL. And so I bring it up because... I don't want to say he's a made man, but to get him to leave that comfort zone, I don't think you can undersell that. I don't think you can undersell that whether you love it or not. You just went and got Notre Dame's offensive coordinator, who is an alum, who was retained by Marcus Freeman. Now there could be other things. Maybe Tommy Reese kind of sees the same. Maybe Tommy Reese sees Notre Dame as a sinking ship. Maybe he believes that this will lead him to get a head coaching job, or maybe he just really wants to work for Nick Saban. The other thing that can't be understated here. Remember who else wanted Tommy Reese? Brian Kelly. Brian Kelly, when he took the LSU head coaching job, tried very hard to get Tommy Reese to to come with him to LSU, and he decided to stay. Now, again, I understand that over the course of a year, things change. I understand that Brian Kelly, as great as he is, he's not Nick Saban. And you get the chance to work with Nick Saban, you probably don't turn it down. But the fact that Brian Kelly wanted him, the fact that Notre Dame, his alma mater, had him, and he decides to leave, I think that's kind of a big deal. And I also think I'll say this. Like, I think sometimes in life, a negative, something that's perceived as a negative can actually be a positive, right? Is that everyone's always 30 years old, only at Notre Dame. Well, 30 years old doesn't have to be a bad thing. 30 years old, in many cases, might be a good thing. What was the complaint about Bill O'Brien, the offensive coordinator this past year for Alabama? The complaint was he's too stubborn. He's too rigid in his play calling. He doesn't establish the run, he relies too much on Bryce Young. Well, you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like a guy that is in his mid 50s, that has been running the offense that he's been running for a very long time, and he doesn't want to change, even if he probably should. You know who else that kind of sounds like? Jimbo Fisher. You know who else that kind of sounds like? Jim Beheim, who we talked about to lead the show. So at the end of the day, maybe having somebody young, having somebody that's not as rigid, that is willing to listen and take in other ideas almost be coached by Nick Saban. I understand you're bringing him in to be the offensive coordinator. You don't want Nick Saban holding his hand like he's a GA or a first year coach. But I also think like the fact that he's probably going to be receptive to working for Nick Saban is a big thing. And the most important thing that cannot be understated, this is really important. He never had talent at Notre Dame like he did, like he will at Alabama. Went ahead and looked it up. In his years at Notre Dame, here's what you need to know. 2023, whatever. I I don't think Mike Mayer, the tight end, will be a a high draft pick. But just talking about skill position players, these are the quarterbacks that he worked under. He worked with Ian Book, Jack Cohn, Tyler Buckner, Drew Pine. By the way, Drew Pine, a Connecticut kid, so you know I got his back. But come on. That ain't exactly Bryce Young and Tua Tonga Viola and Mac Jones and and Jalen uh, Jalen Hurts. And I get that Alabama's got to figure out who their quarterback is going forward. Is it going to be Jalen Milrow? Is it going to be uh, Ty Simpson, the, the the backup this year, the, the the hotshot redshirt freshman? So I understand they don't nef- definitely know who it's going to be. And whoever they get probably isn't going to be Bryce Young. But he never worked with a quarterback like what he's going to have at Alabama. He's never worked with the wide receivers that he's going to have at Alabama. Uh, by the way, I looked it up. Best Best skill position talent that he coached, Kyron Williams. Fifth round pick, a running back in the 2022 NFL Draft. Oh, by the way, wide receiver had a seventh rounder in 2021. So you're talking about an Alabama program that has produced in recent years: Jerry Judy, Jamison Williams, Najee Harris, Devontae Smith, on and on. And some of it is coaching, but some of it is they have much better players than Notre Dame. So all I'm trying to say, the point I'm trying to get to, I'm willing to at least see if this works. Now I know Alabama. If you're an Alabama fan. We don't have time to see how it works. We're here to win a national championship this year and reestablish ourselves as the best program in college football. But I do also think there is reason for optimism and there should be reason for excitement if you're a Bama fan. All right, there is one final college football topic I want to get to. And ironically, uh, it does come from Alabama's biggest rival, the Auburn Tigers. And so what I want to do before we get to the topic itself, I kind of want to set it up because on Friday, just a few days ago, that magical time called right before the weekend. Uh, One of the top high school quarterbacks in America, Walker White. When I say high school quarterback, I'm talking about class of 2024. So I'm talking about one of the great high school quarterbacks that is currently a junior, will be a senior next year. He made his college decision. And that's important because obviously with the 2023 cycle now officially over, everybody's starting on 2024. And you want to get that elite quarterback in as the bedrock of your program To kind of just set the tone for, hey, we're coming here in recruiting. Texas did it with Arch Manning last year. There's plenty of other examples through the years. So why do I bring it up? Well, it's because on Friday, Walker White, high four-star quarterback from Arkansas, the state of Arkansas, the city of Little Rock. He made his college decision. His college decision came down to... drum roll, please. Well, the decision came down to Clemson, Arkansas, and Auburn, and he chose... The Auburn Tigers. And so I want to get into it. I want to break it down. I want to discuss. But first of all, congrats to Auburn fans on getting your quarterback of the future. But really, more importantly, why I'm even talking about this, and I think this is important. Anybody who listens to this show knows, especially college football. I don't do a ton on recruiting. Because ultimately, if it isn't an Arch Manning, and even if it is, but generally, like like individual players don't make that much of a difference. It's the totality of, can you stack, you know, 15, 20, 25 elite players on top of each other year after year after year. That's how you build a roster like Georgia's. That's how you build a roster like Bama's. That's how you build a roster that everybody is trying to build in college football. So to me, this story in this topic isn't really about one kid committing to one school. But what it is about is to say this, if you're an Auburn fan, I truly believe that you cannot argue whether you liked the Hugh Freeze hire at the beginning, whether you didn't, I don't think anyone could have expected anything more than Hugh Freeze in his first two months on the job. And I know that ultimately the entire tenure of Hugh Freeze at Auburn is going to come down to one thing and one thing only. How often do you win on Saturdays? How often do you compete with Alabama and Georgia? I get that nothing that happens in March or January or you know, July matters if you don't win the big games on Saturdays. But what I would say is we can only judge Hugh Freeze based on what he has done since he took the job, and I can't imagine anyone doing any better. And so let's get into what Hugh Freeze has done, because I don't think it can be spoken about enough. And really, it goes back to really about middle of December, that first signing period. And I think we even talked about it a little bit on this show, but I thought Hugh freeze had as impressive and an an early national signing day as anybody in college football. Now, Alabama signed the number one class with a million, five stars. Georgia was really good. Um, You know, uh, Oregon had a, you know, flipped a few five stars. So it's not to say that Auburn had the best class, but when you talk about where they started and where they finished, I don't think anybody did better than Hugh freeze. I talked about it at the time, but when he took over at all, Hugh Freeze had the, a recruiting class ranked in the sixties nationally, according to 24 seven sports. It was literally the worst recruiting class in the sec behind. Yes. Even Vanderbilt, the famous line that I dropped that day because I read it somewhere was that one of the recruits that committed to Auburn said, yeah, the previous coaching staff didn't really prioritize recruiting. And it's like, He didn't prioritize recruiting. What? Uh, I think I compared it at the time. It's like when, imagine you getting divorced from your wife or you getting divorced from your husband or whatever, and your husband or wife saying, yeah, he didn't really prioritize communication in our relationship. It's like, well, communication is like 99% of what leads to a successful marriage. I would think I'm far from an expert, but I know that recruiting is about 99% of what leads to a successful program. And the previous coaching staff literally didn't prioritize it. So Hugh Freeze takes over a situation where they are ranked in the 60s nationally in terms of the recruiting class. Here's what he did. By National Signing Day, they were ranked in the top 20 nationally out of all programs. And he did it by just like recruiting as you know what off. He got, I mean, just looking at their 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 class, okay? Just looking at their class, okay? So, so top player Keldrick Falk was committed to Florida State Flips to Auburn. Kyan Lee, cornerback from the state of Georgia, was committed to Ohio State, flips to Auburn. Jeremiah Cobb was a late addition at running back, but I bring it up to say, started in the 60s, flipped kids from from, uh, Florida State, from Ohio State, from Tennessee, among others. I think Miami, there might have been a Miami flip in there somewhere. But you look at this Auburn recruiting class, which finished in the top 20 nationally, virtually all their biggest signees committed and signed after Hugh Freeze got the job beyond that then there's the transfer portal and listen I love talking portal because I think you can't underestimate in 2023 how important the portal is to building a roster well we did portal winners and losers a few days ago and if you remember guess who was at the top of the list 24-7 sports has Auburn as the number four highest ranked portal class. I'll defer to them on how they do the rankings. And should Auburn have been three? Should Auburn have been five? I don't really care. What I do know is they got dudes that are difference makers that are going to step in and play right away. And importantly, dudes that other people wanted, okay? Dylan Wade, offensive tackle, multi-year starter at Tulsa, ends up coming to Auburn, choosing Auburn over USC. Think USC after what happened against uh Utah in that Pac-12 title game they couldn't use a stud offensive tackle this kid chose Auburn over USC Avery Jones offensive lineman chose Auburn over Illinois could have played for Brett Beal but decides to play for Hugh Freeze Justin Rogers defensive front guy uh you know defensive tackle from Kentucky leaves Kentucky chooses Auburn over a bunch of other schools another uh offensive tackle excuse me from Western Kentucky Gunnar Britton you just go on and on down the list. It's unbelievable. So top 20 recruiting class when he started in the 60s. Top five portal class headlined by offensive line, which for years Auburn fans have said is their weakness, have complained about it. Not complained about it. They're fans. They want a better offensive line. He prioritizes. He gets it. He closes. He finishes. And now he has started 2024 off with a bang, adding one of the highest rated quarterbacks in 2024. And so again, To be clear, because I know we got Alabama fans watching and listening to this, Georgia, Tennessee, whoever. Nothing is guaranteed. I'm not sitting here on February 5th when I'm recording here, February 6th, and promising an SEC West title, promising a national title, promising they're better than LSU, promising they're better than Georgia, promising they're better than Bama. They're not today, and they might never be under Hugh Freeze. But as I always say, my old radio partner, Arnie Spanner used to say this all the time. He says, Aaron the show is tonight and what that means is that we can only judge what is going on right now based on the facts that we have right now and i said from the beginning i thought hugh freeze was the right guy at auburn now listen in hindsight maybe if he could have gone deon sanders that would have been a good hire but outside of, like like i said from the beginning hugh freeze is the guy hugh freeze is the guy he's been in the sec he's won in the sec he knows what it takes to win at the highest level He's recruited at a level that nobody outside of Lane Kiffin, of realistic candidates, if Lane Kiffin was a realistic candidate, actually recruited at. And so I could go on and on. But the point I'm trying to make is this. I know Hugh Freeze will be judged by Saturdays in September, October, November, and December, and maybe into January with that 12-team college football playoff. But we can only go based on what we know right now. And as I said, I think Hugh Freeze has done as good of a job as anybody could have expected through two months at Auburn. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I do think it is time for me to get out of here. Before we do, I want to make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed. Also, make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel, Aaron Torres uh, Podcast on YouTube. If you search it, we hit 20,000 subscribers. Cannot thank you enough, all for your support. If you're not following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter. We have all the team-specific pages. Torres on Auburn, if you're an Auburn fan. Torres on Bama, if you're a Bama fan. Torres on UK, if you're a Kentucky fan. Torres on the Hogs. Torres on the Vols. Torres on UConn. Torres on Arizona. I bring it up to say, Media empire is growing. And if you don't even like me, make sure to follow those pages. They are run by young people, students, interns, whatever, that do a great job. They are fan pages, and they are awesome. That is all for today's show, though. It is time for me to get out of here. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick. You FN unblock me, bro. I'll be back. By the way, Tuesday episode. We're going to have a special episode, a College Hoops episode. John Justremsky, I said it earlier, from the ringer, has agreed to come on. He is a Syracuse alum who lives in New York. We're going to talk Syracuse. We're going to talk st john's it's gonna be a fun one fun little extra episode for you everybody have a good day i will be back on tuesday
3: with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere
2: this is your captain speaking uh, we've
1: got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky
0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group void word prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.